Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma as we take a look at the Chinese grocery delivery market and the two competitors that recently filed for IPOs in the U.S., Ding Dong Mai Tsai and Miss Fresh. Asit, thanks for joining. Emily, thank you for having me. And man, just from the names of these two uh, IPOs, this is worth the time we put in for the research. These are awesome names. (laughs) I know that I've been removed from China too long because both of these names did give me a chuckle, but I was also not familiar with either of them. I left China in 2017, and both of these companies have scaled up just since 2017. So they weren't even around last time I was there, which is a real testament to how quickly I think the Chinese markets develops. That's true. I mean, it's sort of like I blink progress there on so many fronts. I've been following or dabbling a little bit in their uh, bullet train industry. And just am always overawed at how fast things move in China. But having said that, you know, how, how does a really good uh, infrastructure idea or a consumer facing app or business turn into a good investment? That's not always the easy part. <laughs> And what I will say about both of these businesses, and we're going to talk about both of them, but we're going to spend more time talking about Ding Dong, because as I was doing research into these businesses, I found, at least in my opinion, that comparing Ding Dong to Miss Fresh was kind of like comparing Chipotle to those taquitos that you can get at a convenience store. It was night and day between these businesses. I was personally way more excited about the former. Uh, So that's where I really centralize a lot of my research. I'll just lightly touch on the end about why Miss Fresh just doesn't excite me. Well, I want to say on behalf of Miss Fresh, ouch, (laughs) but (laughs) probably deserves it. Uh, And I I think I have a few more comments about Miss Fresh to mix in, but I don't think my opinion is too much different after studying up on these two companies. Well, Ding Dong's a really interesting one. Again, I mentioned that this was a business that started operations around Shanghai in 2017. That was about the same exact time that I was leaving the country. But my familiarity with Ding Dong actually goes back a little bit further. This was a business that was in existence all the way back in 2014, about the time I came into the country. But it was really just this failed social networking app um, launched by the serial entrepreneur Liang Chonglin. And Chonglin had kind of gone through numerous iterations with Ding Dong um, and and previous startups. He successfully sold a prior startup to Tal Education in 2016, um, but Ding Dong just never managed to take off. I think it was a flower delivery shop at one point, breakfast delivery, laundry services. They went through all of these failed ideas before settling on what it is today, which is fresh grocery delivery. And that started in May 2017. That's crazy, Emily. It's like if you left the U.S. and f- came back after three or four years and found out that like MySpace had become Amazon Prime grocery delivery, <laughs> you'd, you'd be similarly surprised to, to hear something that you associated with a not-so-good social app had catapulted into sort of a dominant player in uh, such a difficult industry, the grocery delivery business. 
It actually kind of reminds me of what we talked about last week with Vimeo. It's kind of a similar thing, right? Vimeo then coming around trying to convince everybody, hey, we're not just, you know, this failed version of YouTube. We're actually a completely different, successful SaaS business. The same thing's happening with with Ding Dong. And I will say they are executing. Uh, being a platform for ordering fresh groceries, recently expanding into things like daily necessities, certainly an attractive market in China, as I think we've all learned over the past year, an attractive market no matter where you are. But they take a really unique approach to fulfillment and delivery. You put a lot of notes in that are largely above my head, Ossit. So I want you to explain how they're special. Yeah. And Emily, I think the only reason why they seem so is because I spent so much of my previous life looking at like the grocery business and, and logistics. So unfortunately, the things I really thought were valuable just aren't in the investment world. But once in a while, you get an opportunity to talk about this. So they have an interesting type of uh, fulfillment network. It's called a frontline network, a self-operated frontline fulfillment network. And uh, Ding Dong claims that it's really better suited for this type of delivery, fresh groceries. Um, if you think about the fast-moving consumer goods market, so small items that we would be buying every day, they also fit into this category a little bit. Miss Fresh specializes in those items, but daily necessities, as you mentioned, Emily. How you get those to people at scale, if you're really going to expand across a region of China, uh, you have to rethink the whole business of fulfillment and delivery. So I was very interested in this concept. They have 950 of these frontline fulfillment stations in 29 cities. And what I what I love about it is that this borrows from concepts that you'd normally find in the furniture delivery logistics market here in the US. In fact, a really great way to think about this is Wayfair, which many investors will be familiar with. Wayfair has uh, a network of what's called middle mile network warehouses. They call it Castlegate. They have sort of a brand name for it. And this also, Emily, will remind some listeners to when we talked about Coupon and how they have so many big logistic centers around South Korea. So this model for Wayfair gets its next step in what's called the Wayfair Delivery Network. And that is, of course, a series of uh, spaces, logistic spaces that bring the final product, say a big couch, closer to the consumers, they can make that last mile delivery. And that's what Ding Dong has sort of done. They have their own middle mile network. They have 40 regional processing centers that perform the sorting, processing, and packing of raw goods. Don't confuse this with distribution centers in the United States that an American grocery or dollar store might use. Something a little bit different. They pull in raw produce and they sort it, they process it, they pack it there. Now, between these processing centers and then the frontline fulfillment stations that bring them very, very close to to the consumer, it's sort of an expensive model. And it, it's going to get real expensive if they can't get their unit economic costs and, and pricing just right. However, Ding Dong argues in its F1, and just a refresher, the F is for a foreign filer, same thing as an S1 basically an offering prospectus. They offer in that document that this model is superior to the store-to-home structure that you find all over China, where you have groceries, grocers and um, other types of retailers using these third-party deliveries 
to get their goods closer to consumers, right to consumers' doorsteps. I just want to say, lastly, uh, about this model of distribution and fulfillment, that their fulfillment expenses actually look like they're decreasing as the company becomes bigger. So, they're starting to realize some operating leverage from frontline fulfillment. Fulfillment expenses were about 50% of revenues in 2019. That dropped all the way down to about 36% in 2020. So, we've got some evidence here that this innovative model is working. A lot of that does go over my head, but I remember reading through it and and kind of taking away a few key points, which one of which, as I think you did well, great job of explaining, is that Ding Dong has to take ownership of that inventory. So it ends up being a a pretty asset heavy business model that may stand out to some people. Uh, For instance, if you're accustomed to looking at Alibaba, whose business is largely diversified, but if you go back to its core, it was really just passed through. So the margins looked a lot more impressive than something like Ding Dong or JD, um, or even a Pinduoduo, all of these sorts of uh, Chinese e-commerce businesses. So kind of heading into this business, you can expect a lot of reinvestment uh, into inventory and assets. That's just to be expected. But to your point, the only way this becomes profitable is by reaching scale. And it it kind of scares me. It gives me movie pass vibes where (laughs) the answer to everything as we go through their financial performance is going to be, well, this will be fixed with scale. We just need more scale. And it's an easy cop out, but it is nice to see those fulfillment expenses decreasing year over year as scale happens, because if they're going to make that argument, that needs to happen. Scale is so interesting, Emily, in so many of the IPOs that we've looked at this year. It simultaneously is the answer to producing profitability out of market share, but it's also pixie dust for a lot of companies. It's this, like you say, it's a catch-all sort of magic dust. If we achieve scale, then of course, all these investments are justified and we intend to increase scale and let us show you how we're going to increase scale, but it doesn't always pan out in the real world over time. And what I think is really interesting about the approach that Ding Dong takes is I know a lot of our listeners are probably scratching their heads and thinking, well, why isn't Alibaba doing this? Why isn't JD doing this? All the number of a half dozen or so really successful Chinese e-commerce giants, why aren't they participating in this space? And it's not that they aren't, they're just taking a completely different approach to how they procure those products. And the way that Ding Dong went about it, which I think is really unique, is they went for products that were really hard to find and that you couldn't order on different sites. Things like really high quality fish and meat, fresh produce, these sorts of things that customers didn't quite entrust with the Alibabas of the world, because what they were doing was going to their local market, grabbing something, delivering it to their door. People were like, well, yeah, I can do that though. And so Ding Dong, by by going directly to the source, going directly to the suppliers to get the freshest ingredients, I think built up trust with a, a pretty large swath of active users now. I think so. And um, you mentioned, Emily, in our notes that they have something called a seven plus one quality control procedure that helps them cut out the middleman or middlemen, or we should say middle persons in groceries. <laughs> um, and it keeps just what you're saying, that that the supply of goods at a very high quality. I was fascinated by this because it reminded me a bit of another company. And and I'm sorry if I'm searching for US analogs today. Um, Emily has the benefit and experience of having lived in China, and I'm always trying to relate things in China to what I know here. But I'll go ahead with another one. This reminded me a lot of Whole Foods because Ding Dong 
is very keen to form really deep relationships with these higher quality suppliers. They help farms and cooperatives with something called good agricultural practices or GAP. And I believe this must be similar to um, GMP. If any of you out there have ever worked in a manufacturing environment, which I have earlier in my career, you're familiar with this idea of good manufacturing practices. They have a proprietary uh, set of procedures that helps, and they call that DGAP or Ding Dong Gap. I'm sorry, I just love this name. I, I, I love all the fun of Chinese businesses. So DGAP simultaneously helps suppliers get better ensures a consistent, uh, very reliable supply back to the consumer, but it also promotes a lot of loyalty. So if you start dealing with Ding Dong, the idea is that even as you increase your revenue with them, you're not going to want to leave. So I thought that was a pretty smart way to help grow, to achieve scale again, but with suppliers, having them grow alongside you. And for anybody who is wondering, the Ding Dong name, I, I think it does have kind of a good American analog here at the doorbell. It it, it does mean that in China as yeah. well. Ding Dong. Cool. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, you know, you can buy groceries, you can buy your fresh produce. So that's kind of the idea behind Ding Dong, Mai Tsai. And so it is silly. It's silly to say it, kind of fun at the same time. The good thing about this unique process that they have, both with quality control and their fulfillment network, is this uh, movement towards speedy delivery. And we've seen this become increasingly critical, especially with third parties as we look at the Chinese e-commerce market. And it's great to see that Ding Dong coming out of this IPO already has speedy delivery practices in place. They deliver more than 1 million orders every day with a target delivery time of and I'll let everybody kind of think about this for a second. What do you think the target delivery time is, right? Two days, one day, try 30 minutes, right? So when you talk about buying fresh meat, fresh fish, fresh produce, that's the whole point of having out these tiny kind of, I don't want to call them warehouses because that's that's not an accurate description. These, these frontline fulfillment stations is to get it to people's door in 30 minutes. And in a lot of cities, there's no delivery minimums. There's no order minimums. Uh, you can get free delivery every time in 30 minutes. That's a really strong value proposition. For sure. Um, I also liked, Emily, that you point out how strong um, their transacting members are. Can you tell us a little bit about this Ding Dong membership, which seems to me a real vibrant part of the business? So you can use Ding Dong just as a casual user, one-off purchaser, but actually an increasingly number, an increasingly large number of their users are, are what we call um, Ding Dong members. So 22% of their monthly transacting users are members of the Ding Dong membership, and they contribute nearly half of the total gross merchandise volume running through the Ding Dong network. And essentially what you do is you pay 88 RMB a year, which is around $14 for an auto renew membership. And it gives you things like member only coupons, discounted prices. I think it's 12% off Fridays, a better customer service. So it's not to use another American example here. It's kind of like Amazon Prime. Uh, you pay up to get a better experience. And they have some really crazy, impressive repurchase and retention numbers. I love that they provide these numbers. I've gotten so accustomed to not getting this type of detail, but their 12 and 24 month repurchase rates for Ding Dong memberships are 64 and 71% respectively. And their total retention rate since inception, which was the second quarter of 2018, is around 50%. I thought those numbers were pretty impressive. I thought so too, especially when you think about how 
competitive the market is in China and the fact that many people in urban cities, yes, they love online convenience, but they also live very close to really great grocery stores. Um, so, in the markets that Ding Dong plays in, to be able to have people subscribe to the service and hit an overall retention rate of 49%, but even better, those repurchase rates signal to me that if they can improve that bounce rate just a little bit, they already have sort of the, the locked-in annualized recurring revenue component. If I can pull a term out of the technology sector, they have people that start are, that are beginning to feel like, you know, I really don't remember what it was like before I started using this product and, and this app. I don't know if it has coupon to coupon level of of stickiness. I, I truly think coupon was in a kind of in a league of its own with its value proposition, right? But I do think that this is increasingly moving in that direction, and I love it. I will say that getting started in Shanghai has a plus and, and negative, I think, to its business. In one hand, on one hand, Shanghai is an extremely competitive market, so they really. Did kind of commit trial by fire by going to one of the single most competitive markets you can be in in China with an entirely new delivery service, trying to compete with really entrenched customers, already existing loyalty programs. But the flip side of that is you're getting a lot of really high value customers first, which is going to make it hard when they move into lower tier cities in China to get those same levels of, of stickiness and spending that they can expect from consumers around the Shanghai area. Yeah, I I love your perspective on this. I am vaguely familiar with tier one cities, so these are the biggest cities in China, and I was interested in the F one um, when Ding Dong talked about where its focus is. So this is the Yangtze River Delta, um, and not that this includes not only Shanghai but many other big cities that viewers will be familiar with: Nanjing, Wuxi. Um, Hangzhou. I hope I'm pronouncing all these right. Emily can correct me. You did a good job. Hangzhou, but close. Okay. Hangzhou? Yes. Okay. There. I won't get into this but um, in detail, but we had ordered something uh, from China. It came from Hangzhou. And uh, it was a really, this was years ago, it was, it was through Amazon. It came with a really beautiful card, which had a proverb about this city. And my family used to recite this. My kids were smaller, so they might have a ginger ale. My, my wife and I would be sharing a glass of wine at dinner, and we would recite this like almost like weird verse they had inserted in this. I mean, this goes to, I think, China's um, real diverse a fun, again, fun-loving um, set of entrepreneurs. But I have a special love of that one city because that I associate oh, I it in, that. in my memory with with toasting around the dinner table. But getting back to business, if you put all these cities together, you get one of the largest collections of adjacent metropolises in the entire world. In this Yangtze River Delta, which I'm going to call the YRD, as many people do, that makes it a lot easier for me. In the YRD, you have $2.2 trillion in annual gross domestic product in, in do US dollar terms. And I think that's actually an old figure. It This region produces 24% of total Chinese GDP and has a population of roughly one-third the size of the US. So, agreeing with that point, Emily, 
In the F1, Ding Dong said that its gross merchandise value expanded at a compounded annual growth rate of nearly 320% between 2018 and 2020. So the, the key takeaway here is that for a company to succeed, Emily has to leave China for it really to take off. However, you take that fast growth rate, and then what happens when you start looking around for the other cities? And I was actually uh, a little concerned uh, at the, the growth prospects the company stated in its prospectus that this is very positive. So they list a city, which again, I'll need help here, but I think it's Manshan. Um, is that correct? Close? Close enough. Okay. So I'm no the, expert. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an industrial city. Um, and here in the States, it would be a pretty large city. So this is about 700,000 people, um, very decent per capita. Um, expenditure of uh, RMB 31,000 in 2019. And and they say that they achieved a faster ramp-up speed here when they went into this city than they did in mature markets like Shanghai. But if that's the case, and we're now dipping down into these smaller um, cities, there is that rural and urban divide which has existed in China forever and, and still can be very stark once you leave a big metropolitan area or even a megalopolis like the YRD, you can pretty suddenly be into farmland and not these dense centers with uh, really high uh, per capita income, people that are packed closely together and ready to spend. So, Emily, having lived in the country and traveled around, do you think I'm over-worrying this or Perhaps it could be uh, something that is, is a little bit of a wall as the company tries to hit that scale we've been talking about. I think it's an appropriate worry. And it's actually interesting. I'm going to derail a little bit, and I apologize. But it reminds me of an investment I made a few years ago in Pinduoduo. And it might be a familiar name to, to listeners now. The ticker is PDD. Uh, but Pinduoduo was an up-and-coming e-commerce provider, had recently IPO'd, and in a lot of respects, is very similar to to Ding Dong in that they sell what are very low value products. And it was a major concern. I, I saw the sticky social aspect of Pinduoduo that really excited me. But my big concern was the fact that what was flowing through their, their network were really low value items. We're talking toilet paper, tissues, um, not electronics, not big ticket purchases. And the company was, and still is, losing money hand over foot to try to fulfill these really low value products. But I liked the idea. I liked the leadership a ton. Um, CEO actually recently stepped down. So that has turned out to, to change a little bit. But the, the idea was compelling to me. And what I did like most about their strategy was they actually were super sticky in tier two, tier three, even tier four cities before they were in tier one, because people in those areas were a lot more price sensitive. And they were willing to buy stuff on Pinduoduo's platform because they were getting it much cheaper by participating in group buying than they were on Alibaba or JD. So I liked that aspect. I liked that they could expand to tier one cities. And they haven't quite taken off in those higher tier cities, but they haven't needed to because the lower tier cities have been growing so much and have been such a sticky audience for them. I think in terms of gross merchandise value, they are now the largest e-commerce retailer in China. So I agree with your skepticism, and I'm especially concerned about their ability to tap into lower tier cities that do tend to be a bit more price sensitive, tend to care a little bit less about the 30-minute delivery. But at the same time, 
I kind of went against the the better instinct of myself when I bought shares of Penduoduo, and it's been an amazing investment for me. So I might be willing to cut them some slack. Yeah, I, I like that. So taking what looks like it could be sort of a big risk and trying to stick with it for a while and, and watch the story as it evolves. It's something that I'm trying to get better at as an investor is not to just turn away when you have that initial burst of skepticism on a rather big front, but to see how management is going to counter that, what they have to offer that could be you know, maybe optionality on the table. I don't know much about the management team, uh, but this would be something if I follow this company more closely that I would then, maybe would be a next level piece of research for me. Well, what about these people who are running the company? What are they capable of? Do they look creative enough and uh, resourceful enough to figure a way to to make their unit economics work as they get into sort of the lower consumption areas? And I, I think Pinduoduo, we could talk about that all day. It's been so fascinating. Um, I do remember you talking about this last year on one of my first live appearances with you, I think. And I have followed it for a while. One of those, if you didn't listen to Emily, you, you missed out, right? <laughs> because that turned out well. We won't bring out, though, any stinkers that, that you might have had. Baozun, uh, probably a good example <laughs> of, a, of a stinker that you could compare my investment in Pindle Duel to. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just un, unnecessarily um, ribbing you today, I think, Emily. I love so, it. <laughs> okay. Well, awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about the metrics of this company because they're impressive. And I think if you want sort of a foundational thesis to buy a company that is losing money, but it's in a re- operates in a really great market, some of these metrics um, are pointing to that. It's funny. We normally talk metrics earlier than we do in this show. And I love the fact that we kind of save the metrics for the end here because actually these metrics are pretty crazy good, in my opinion. Uh, or Excuse me, Ding Dong, not Pendledua. Ding Dong has around a 10% market share of the on-demand e-commerce industry in China, which may not sound like a lot, but again, they were largely focused in a very specific area, pretty new business, so plenty of expansion opportunities as they get into those lower tier cities. They have around 7 million monthly transacting users, uh, 70 million total orders, and over 13 billion won in, in gross merchandise value in 2020. As you mentioned, that's up more than 300% from 2018 to 2020. But more importantly, that's more than two times the industry growth rate. So you can make an argument that the past few years have been a great time to be in grocery delivery for obvious reasons. And it has been. The industry grew 115% over the past two years. But but Ding Dong managed to more than double that growth, which says to me, they're doing something right. Yeah. The demand is there in this industry for sure. Um, are the profits there? Well, you know, you do point out, Emily, in our notes that 6.7 average monthly orders is the unit for transacting users. That's a lot. So if, if you just divide a month by that, that's every few days, at least one order. This goes back to, I think, the stickiness that you were talking about earlier. And it's convincing to me. Now, that order size is down during the pandemic. So pre-pandemic, they were at about 70 RMB, which equates to about 11 bucks per order. Um, that now... During the, the the pandemic, we don't have more recent figures. I don't think we have first quarter numbers. I could be wrong here, so correct me if I am. The average order size is down to about fifty four RMB for order, or about eight bucks for per US dollar. I don't think that's um, too small an order size if the frequency is there. In fact, just 
multiplying that out over the year, again, you see the value of a customer and how that can grow. The one thing that I love about China, which offsets my worries about their declining population rate. And I know that sounds crazy to say, let me take a quick digression here. China being the most populous country in the world, why would anyone worry about their demographics? Well, the, the one-child policy, which is now you know, belatedly been expanded and expanded. Now, I, I believe the latest is you can have three children if you want. Um, that shows no sign of reversing anytime soon. So, you've got a shrinking workforce, an older workforce. You have um, a general population that's getting older, a lot of gray hair that the younger generation has to support. So, it's actually going to be a problem in China, as it will be in the US. In South Korea is another great example. Japan is another great example. Um, almost every continent except for Africa, we're going to be dealing with the effects of declining um, populations. All that to say that I love frequency and stickiness and um, increases per order in a country in which consumption is increasing every year because the wealth is growing per capita every year. That could offset some of the effect of population decline. Yeah, I, I have to be honest, that average order size around $8, even if that person transacting six to seven times a month makes me a little bit nervous, um, largely because it was the same reason Pinto as well made me nervous. There's a lot of frequency, but low value for orders. And I just have a really hard time understanding how that business scales. And I do think it comes down to their frontline fulfillment network and just the amount of orders they can push through these fulfillment centers. If they can manage to make it profitable, I think great. But I I, I want to see the average order size climbing. I, I want to see that engagement deepening. And the fact that it fell over the course of, of the pandemic to now kind of says to me, Maybe maybe it's not as sticky. Maybe it's not as valuable as I'm as I might have believed. Sure, the next three or four sequential quarters will tell everything. So we'll we'll see exactly what's happening with that consumer. So before we wrap this one up, um, we should talk financials. And I, I love this because oftentimes we're we're talking financials for fifteen or twenty minutes, but we've sort of given the big picture here. This is a company that's growing very fast, as you mentioned before, Emily. Revenue growth of 192% year over year um, to 3.9 billion RMB. I mean, from 3.9 billion RMB, so about 4 billion RMB to 11.3 billion RMB. And that's, for those of you who are curious, about $1.7 billion US last year. But they're also losing money. As expected. I'm not sure if that, that sure. shocks anyone. And <laughs> right. and probably more concerning, their net loss margins have been increasing. So as a percentage of revenue, their net loss is actually growing, at least over 2021 in comparison to 2020. Now, we'll always make the argument that 2020 was an abnormal year. So again, maybe I'm willing to give a little bit of grace here for a wonky 2020. It'll be an interesting metric to continue to watch as we head into 2022. Fulfillment expenses have come down, but their bottom line is certainly not looking any better. Right. And I think that um, you have a point in that without hitting that scale that is so important here, this could be a company that captures market share, but never is able to push those profits to the bottom line. I think that uh, the, the point you made earlier is quite relevant. What happens over the next you know, a couple of quarters, you're going to be watching that average order size. Um, I will be doing the same. I think this is a company that I'm interested in following. So, order size, maybe even a little more uptick in the frequency and 
let's see now with sort of a reset. And in China, certainly, you you have a, a great reset in terms of a normalized economy, a post-COVID economy. Let's see what happens in terms of adding on more users as well. Definitely, it'll be interesting one to watch. And before we move on to Miss Fresh here, I always tend to touch on risk factors, and it just occurred to me right now that I didn't put any risk factors in our outline. I'll quickly note on probably the most obvious risk factor, which is a lot of、uh, uncertainty around China right now, and a lot of people listening might even be thinking to themselves, "Well, why do these businesses want to IPO in the United States? Why aren't they just going to the Shanghai Star Index or the Hong Kong Stock Exchange?" And while they both certainly need and want money, both Miss Fresh and Jing. Ding Dong are you know, producing net losses. They need capital to continue running their businesses. At the same time, there's some legal structures I think that exist in the U.S. that can make it a more attractive place to list, even if it ends up being that they have to transfer their listing later on. One of those being the dual class share structure that Ding Dong is taking advantage of.、Uh, Co-founder CEO wants to retain ownership of the business. This isn't something that's looked fondly upon in in the Shanghai market or even the Hong Kong stock exchange. So they want to list here in the U.S. largely to get the benefits of. At least my perception is. To largely get the benefits of a dual class listing structure, but there's also no- notes, and I-, I see that you added here, Juan Asset, about the free rider issue that that <laughs> exists in the United States that can start to exist in China as well. Yeah, so、um, one of the the risks that I just wanted to highlight before we move on, it's not one that's obvious, but it is central to both Ding Dong and Miss Fresh, and that they both use outsourced. Riders,、um, so not to be confused with an insurance rider, but these are delivery people on motorbikes and scooters. So, not in the U.S. it's drivers, and in China, oftentimes it's riders because of the compactness of the cities. This is a key to to both companies' eventual profitability, being able to outsource the delivery component. Because if you、um, decide that you're going to employ all these riders, that Adds a lot to the expenses that you have in your overhead in, in terms of benefits, insurance. We're all familiar with this. Anyone who has worked、uh, a job in, in the U.S. gets this. And in both countries, we have sort of the rise of the gig economy, where people are, are taking on part-time gigs and side hustles, and and some people are turning these side gigs into full-time jobs. So you're a full-time. Uber rider driver that is in the U.S. or you're delivering for、uh, different e-commerce retailers in China. You can work for just one. If you are a rider, you can work for more.、Um, th- this is so interesting because in China, the third-party delivery riders often tend to be overworked. Some have、um, committed suicide. It's been very controversial about the low rate of pay that exists in the structure. In China, and this is not just a a wage issue, but it's also becoming something a bit larger because there is an activist movement within this、uh, industry of delivery people. And、uh, I think this spring, one of their、um, leaders mysteriously disappeared, just as in Hong Kong when the protests got hot. Some of the Journalists temporarily disappeared, and I think one of the publishers in Hong Kong, same thing happened to him. So,、uh, this is a risk to keep your eye on if you are 
investing in this space. The other part of it, which is not as visible, is very similar to what's going on here in the U.S. in that the Chinese government could step in and regulate delivery riders, and it could force companies to classify these as employees. So companies wouldn't have a choice to say, we're just going to use this contract labor uh, at a cheaper rate. They would have to employ um, drivers. The only company that I know, and I am by no means an expert on this industry in, in Asia, but the only one I've come across is you know a recent conversation about Coupang, Emily. Coupang employs uh, a good portion of its delivery workforce, but not so in China. And uh, it's just something to be aware of that rising tensions because of low wages, plus a potential implication for overhead uh, benefits, taxes that are due on workers, something that could shift the outlook for a company that relies on a fulfillment model. Because yes, you can have all types of variation on logistics, distribution, last mile fulfillment. Miss Fresh has its own take, which we'll discuss in just a moment here. But without this ability to pay a very low rate for the labor component, most of these models aren't going to work over the long term. I love that. And to move on to Miss Fresh quickly here, I'm, I'm going to color my opinion and everybody listening opinion about Miss Fresh right off the bat, not even giving them an opportunity here to defend themselves. And I'll, I'll say this, I, I went through Ding Dong first, went through Miss Fe- Miss Fresh second, and was was taken aback by how stark the difference and, and performance between the two businesses was. But I'll tell you what irritated me the most. Miss Fresh kept using the, the acronym DMW. And everywhere I read DMW, DMW, our DMWs, and I had to go to the, the appendix or index where they list all their terms to find out what this meant. They only clarified it there. It's distributed mini warehouse. And I'm convinced if you need to come up with a cute little acronym to describe your very non-unique business structure, you're trying to cover for something. So I was already kind of turned off of this business within the first few pages. It's funny you should mention that, Emily, because certainly I was control effing. Now, y'all, this is a PG-rated show, so I'm not I'm not giving shorthand for cursing. I'm not dropping an f bomb here. Control F is a function on your keyboard if you need to search for something. So I wasn't cursing because I couldn't find this acronym. I was hitting Control button and F to see. I mean, where is this explained? And then I Googled it, and it was not in the first page of search results either. Now, I have the benefit. Uh, dear viewers and listeners on the podcast, and that I have Emily Flippin to explain to me what DMW stands for. But that also took me aback because it was sort of what I call S1 chutzpah, which is when you drop a big term at the beginning because you feel that everyone in the, the world should know about your company and how you've innovated, it turns the reader off. The way you should do it is to explain the term and then say, yes, we actually pioneered this, by the way. We're very proud of it. Of course, we have worthy competition with their own variations of the strategy. Uh-uh. This is a little bit in your face, wasn't it? I'm getting such a chuckle by the fact that you experienced this as well, because I we didn't write this out, guys. Both of us, we read through the F1 independently, and I love the fact that we both had this problem. It is, in my opinion, certainly overcompensating, but this is petty. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm a petty person. This is a, a petty complaint to have about a business, but I know you've done more research into these DMWs than I have, Asset. Is there anything actually exciting here? Well, 
you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. So, a distributed mini warehouse basically is a cold storage unit, and it's used to move fresh grocery goods direct to the consumers. And they actually have a pretty fast delivery time as well. It's not quite ding dong, but their average delivery time is 39 minutes. Um, they have an emphasis with this model on serving neighborhoods. So they place these DMWs in high density neighborhoods with pretty decent uh, per, per capita income. I wouldn't call them always affluent areas, but they do avoid uh, neighborhoods where the buying power just isn't there. Um, they've got an app called Miss Fresh. So just like the company name, their mobile app allows users to order from about 4,300 SKUs, and most of these feature fresh. Produce. Remember, Emily told us that、uh, Ding Dong had what、uh, three or four times this number. I think eleven or twelve thousand unique SKUs.、Um, so a smaller offering. They've invested a lot in smart supply chains, smart logistics, and AI, artificial intelligence, enhanced marketing. But you know, everyone does <laughs> in this day and age. I will tell you from spending some years studying the grocery industry. You can't really compete today without having a smart supply chain that's informed by machine learning. So、um, I guess the the one thing that I can say to give them some credit here is they're they're using this knowledge and expertise that、uh, they've gathered in building their personal take on something a little bit similar to to frontline delivery, and they're trying to leverage that and help. Brick and mortar retailers. Now, the first instance of this, I was actually pretty fascinated by. It's not going to be a big part of their business, but it is sort of cool. It's called intelligent fresh markets. So in China, they have these really popular fresh markets, which people go to not just to to buy their groceries, but to socialize. And I think that Miss Fresh had a key observation in that these aren't going away because people love to go to them. They they love the touch of the produce. Yes, the the online e-commerce industry in China is growing at a rampant pace, but the sector that we're looking at today, which is the grocery space, even though it's growing at that 115 percent rate every year, it's never going to displace completely the the love that the Chinese have of going to the market, looking at their goods, touching them, chatting with neighbors, and so their take on this was to think about the vendors and the spaces and. Miss Fresh realized that hey, we can apply our technology. We can change the floor plans of existing fresh markets into smart fresh malls. There's that word "smart" again. I mean, why do they have to keep saying "smart"? <laughs> why can't they just say you know "innovative fresh malls"? But at any rate, let me proceed、um, by just reconfiguring the floor plan, making it a little bit more accessible so people could get through.、Uh, In, in a bit better fashion than sometimes the frenzied and maze-like patterns you have to go through in existing markets, which might have been around for a long time. They provide the vendors there with a software as a service-based platform that helps them take electronic payments、um, and gives them customer relationship management tools, and even helps these vendors utilize the bigger Miss Fresh platform so they can monetize their products a little further. They've got contracts to operate 54 of these fresh markets in 14 cities in China. They launched this in the second half of 2020. They're already operating 33 markets in 10 cities, and they've got this one additional business line, which is to help local retailers and grocery stores participate in the online delivery arena. So they just enable them to、uh, sell retail via their e-commerce model. They call this their retail cloud services business, and that was launched earlier this year. Now I have a note about both of these here, Emily, that. 
the company says each of these streams is just there to help improve their gross margin profile. They don't even say that this is going to be a significant impact to revenue. It's all about improving existing poor margins. Um, it's it's hard to say, except saying the following. It's hard to say anything tangible about this, except saying the following. I should say it that this way. These are really cool ideas, but they're not going to have a huge economic impact to the company's current financial structure. It was almost like a little bit of a distraction that management realized they may not achieve the scale that they need. And now they're going at a frenzied pace to have a strategic reset. And they're looking around like, how can we use our technology in a way that won't totally cause us to recreate the wheel? And this is what they've come up with. Again, it sounds sort of cool, but what will it really do to a company that has a loss margin that's around 27%, meaning thereby they're losing about uh, 27 cents for every yuan that they sell. And here's your flipping conspiracy for the day. Um, I think part of the reason why this business is interested in listening listing on the U.S. exchanges is U.S. exchanges are are less aggressive against things like AI and smart technology in comparison to foreign exchanges. We regulate those terms less. And in my opinion, a distraction is probably a good way to describe these numerous business lines. Uh, so while we run out of time here on on Miss Fresh and sum up, I'm going to sum up just really quickly some more of the reasons why. I don't like the business. They break out annual transacting users as opposed to monthly or weekly. I don't know about you, Asit, but I eat more frequently. I order groceries more frequently than on an annual basis. So that metric to me is pretty meaningless. But perhaps most importantly um, is not only their numerous business lines, which includes a dying vending machine business, which in my opinion is a hallmark of Chinese business scams if they own vending machines, but they actually had revenue and active customers fall year over year. Whereas we just talked about Ding Dong, which grew active customers and revenue 40 and 46% year over year, respectively. So you compare those two businesses, there's really only one winner in my mind. Yeah, I should. To, now, to be fair, I should say that Ding Dong has a very similar loss margin when you look at the bottom line. I think theirs is 29%. Um, and Miss Fresh, now I have it here, is 27%. I might have said 28%. It's a really similar loss margins. And Ding Dong even has a higher fulfillment expense per uh, RMB of revenue. At 32%, then Miss Fresh does at 25%. But guess what, Emily? Without that top line growth, you really can't convert this model into anything that's going to stick around for a long time. Now, maybe they will be able to pivot um, and, and maybe they'll be able to use their public offering. I'm talking about Miss Fresh here to raise capital to fund losses for additional years. But there really isn't any kind of visible path to this company returning a lot for shareholders if they can't grow revenues at an appreciable clip and they're just going after market share without any kind of momentum on the top line. That just seems like a recipe for uh, potential disaster. And I, I don't, I'm not being flip here to, to use the word uh, because we've seen this play out in some Chinese companies. One which actually had a fraudulent component was Luck and Coffee. And I don't mean to cloud these issues, but I will say if you take away the, the fraudulent accounting issues that Luckin had, it was also in sort of a race against time initially. Um, I think that what's left of that company now has been able to restructure and it's much smaller. It's growing at a more realistic rate and not just trying to grab market share. But this just looks like a market share grab with nothing beneath it. 
Oh, and guess what? Luck and Coffee had vending machines too. <laughs> there, there you go. So, takeaway here: if if you see the word vending machine mentioned in a in a F one originating from China, Emily says, and I think I second her here. Pay attention; like it could be a sign of some desperation. Like if I wanted to own a vending machine, I'd own a vending machine. I don't need to buy your stock to do that. True that. <laughs> well, Asit, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Same here, Emily. I really appreciate it, and this was so much fun. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, feel free to shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. <laughs>